The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, welcome to the first Crimopedia podcast episode of 2023. I'm so glad to see you here, and I'm ready to hit the ground running. Today, we'll be talking about a case that I didn't hear about until someone else suggested it to me. It seems like these days, that doesn't happen very often, but as soon as I started reading about this case, I was hooked. It's a very interesting but deeply tragic case about a massacre that occurred in Michigan back in 1927. What gets me about this case is the fact that it occurred not too far actually from where I live but obviously many years before I was born. I'm very excited to start the new year off here with you all, and so without further ado, I think it's a good time to jump right in. On May 18, 1927, Andrew Keogh killed 45 people in a series of violent attacks in the unincorporated community area of Bath. The Bath area of Michigan is a civil township located only about 10 miles from the city of Lansing in Michigan, United States. It's a very small community located within Clinton County, and for the longest time, it was mostly just an agricultural area. The few local residents that lived in Bath were mostly farmers, but the area continues to develop even now, although it's remained small. But a big step in the community's development happened in 1922, when the Bath Consolidated School District was created. I didn't know what a consolidated school was, but according to Merriam-Webster, a consolidated school is one that's formed by the merging of several other schools in a local area. When it opened, the Bath Consolidated School had 236 students initially enroll. But the opening of this school was controversial, because usually these schools have more advantages to them. It's often reported that students at consolidated schools get a higher quality of education than the other schools that they were attending before or other schools in the local rural area. But the real controversy that surrounded the opening of the Bath Consolidated School came from the fact that local residents in the area would end up having to pay higher taxes for just living there. Landowners in the township were going to be responsible for paying a higher tax fee to help the school run and to pay for all those advantages that consolidated students were receiving. One of many of the local residents who were understandably frustrated about these higher taxes they had to pay was Andrew Kehoe although he was originally born in Tecumseh, Michigan, which is about an hour and a half's drive now from the Bath Township. Andrew was born on February 1st of 1872, and he was one of 13 kids in his family, although having larger families was undoubtedly more common back then. Andrew was an electrician by trade, 
and he would end up moving to St. Louis, Michigan, about 43 minutes away from Bath, before reportedly suffering a head injury at some point in his life and ending up in a coma for several weeks. Due to his injury, he would end up moving back to his family's farm in Tecumseh. And although his backstory isn't really relevant to what he would go on to do later, I find it interesting to mention this head injury in particular, especially the fact that it was so severe he ended up in a coma. In my own opinion, there's something to be said about the sheer amount of killers that have, in hindsight, been found to have suffered head trauma in their early life. Some examples include Richard Ramirez, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, Albert Fish, Henry Lee Lucas, Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer, and John Wayne Gacy, who we all know. Keep this in mind when we talk about motive. In addition to suffering with an early life head trauma, Andrew Kehoe in 1911 reportedly also witnessed a horrific psychological trauma in his own home. His biological mother had unfortunately passed away, soon after his father remarried, and his new stepmother moved into the house which Andrew had returned to after his head trauma. But one day in 1911, when she was trying to light their oil stove, it exploded. Andrew's stepmother was engulfed in flames, and his attempt to save her not knowing it was an oil fire was to throw a bucket of water on her. Obviously, it only worsened the situation, as I hope we all know what happens when you throw water at an oil fire. If you don't, it just makes the flames much, much bigger. Within a fraction of a second, she was completely engulfed in flames, burning to death right in front of him. And frankly, part of that was his doing. The consequences were horrific, and unfortunately, she died later in hospital the next day. Many people speculate that both the psychological trauma and the physical head trauma that Andrew Kehoe endured in his early years could have contributed to his actions later in life. In 1912, Andrew married a woman named Ellen Price, but she went by Nellie, and they would move to a farm just outside of Bath. As a new married man in his new farmstead with his new wife, Andrew was reportedly a good neighbor and friendly to those around him, but a lot of that was surface level, according to most of the reports I read. If you talked to Andrew for a little bit too long or did something that he didn't like, you would notice that he struggled with his anger management. Sometimes, if something aggravated him too much, he would often resort to violence. One example of this violent behavior was when a dog that belonged to one of Andrew's neighbors kept coming onto his property. Andrew decided that the only way to prevent this from happening again would be to shoot it. There was another violent incident reported involving a horse that I won't get into, but I'm sure you get the gist. Aside from Andrew's reputation of being abruptly hot and cold, he also had a reputation of being frugal. He reportedly liked to save his money, and people knew this about him. So when he ran for trustee of the Bath Consolidated School Board, to the community members who were voting, it was kind of a no-brainer to let him take the job. In fact, he was trustee for three years, and treasurer for one. In his role, Andrew argued very intently for lowering those taxes that landowners in the region were having to pay for the consolidated school. 
It got to the point where he was so frugal that many people who had to work with Andrew were frustrated with him because he didn't want to spend money on anything, even the most necessary things. He started out arguing something that made sense. He didn't think that landowners should have to pay such a high tax for the school, and ended up spiraling into extremeness. And he would often vote in opposition with his board members for the sake of halting their financial agendas, just because he didn't want anyone to be spending any money. Because he was unable to get the taxes lowered for landowners in the region, he tried to have the valuation of his own property reduced so that he would have to pay less taxes, but that didn't work either. The way the taxes worked was that you had to pay a certain amount per $1,000 that your house was worth. For Andrew, his farmstead was appraised at $10,000 in 1922, which means that he was paying $12.26 for every $1,000 that his farmstead was worth. Each year, this totaled about $122, which in today's money is about two grand. But in 1923, that tax was raised from $12.26 to $18.80 per $1,000. This upped Andrew Kehoe's taxes to $198 going to the Bath Consolidated School. In today's money, this totals about $3,000. Andrew was understandably frustrated. Given the high taxes he was paying for on top of everything else that comes with owning a farm, His finances began to catch up with him, and in 1926, Andrew Kehoe was served a foreclosure notice by Sheriff Fox. The sheriff noted while serving this foreclosure notice that Andrew muttered something about how, if it hadn't been for the high school tax, he might have been able to pay his mortgage on time. He would go on to also make concerning comments to the mortgage holder, saying that if he can't live in his farmstead, nobody else will. To make matters even worse, it didn't seem like opportunity was coming Andrew's way anytime soon. The year prior to this foreclosure notice being served in 1925, Andrew was appointed the temporary town clerk. According to the website for the Bath Township in the Departments and Services section, the role of the town clerk was to be responsible for maintaining all official records including ordinances, resolutions, contracts, and correspondence. In Andrew's eyes, and to many other people, it was quite a prestigious role that included a lot of responsibility and public accountability. But in the election for the town clerk position in 1926, Andrew was defeated by a landslide. And he was reportedly very angered by this public defeat. Around this same time, Nellie, his wife, was dying of tuberculosis, which at that time, there was no tangible treatments or cure. Not only was he booted out of his prestigious role as the town clerk, but the high taxes he was paying for the Bath Consolidated School made him unable to even pay his mortgage. And then with his wife's hospital bills, it was all starting to catch up to Andrew, and he was getting very, very angry. One of Andrew's neighbors noticed that he had stopped working on his farm. He stopped tending to it, and was also kind of weirded out that Andrew Kehoe gave him a horse for no reason. Behaviors like this can sometimes be indicators of a suicide on the horizon. Someone discontinuing maintenance of their own hygiene or possessions or responsibilities, as well as giving away all of their possessions for seemingly no reason, 
And that's what this neighbor thought too. He was worried that Kehoe was going to try and take his own life. But he would later discover that Andrew Kehoe was doing other things on his farm to prepare, such as cutting down all of his wire fences and gathering lumber to put in a shed, but not for a suicide. Instead, for a massacre. Although Andrew's neighbors, friends, and family could see that he was deteriorating on the inside, becoming increasingly angry, resentful, and difficult to tolerate, what they couldn't see and wouldn't have known was that Andrew had begun preparing for a massacre, and that began with the buying and hoarding of explosives. It's unknown when Andrew Kehoe began planning for a massacre. But it began with buying pyrotol over the course of a year, which is an incendiary explosive typically used by farmers for excavating and burning things, and he was also driving to and from Lansing to buy dynamite at a sporting goods store. Back then, I guess this was also a common thing for farmers to acquire, and so when Andrew Kehoe was making multiple trips to buy pyrotol and dynamite over the course of a year, Nobody thought it was suspicious. I mean, he was a farmer. And despite his odd behavior and clear mental deterioration, when neighbors heard explosives going off near the farmstead, they just figured he was tending to his farm, which is odd because they hadn't seen him doing any other work. But I'm sure these observations were easy to justify in the moment, but in hindsight, they were absolutely a clue into what he was planning. Later on, Michigan State Police began investigating the theft of a large amount of dynamite stolen from a bridge construction site, and it's thought that Andrew Kehoe committed this theft as well. Nobody noticed, but at this time, he also purchased a 30 caliber Winchester bolt-action rifle. Now, I keep mentioning a massacre. I keep mentioning Andrew Kehoe planning something that nobody else in his life was aware of. But what exactly did he do? Well, almost completely undetected, Andrew Kehoe took much of his explosives collection down to the Bath Consolidated School after loading the back of his truck with metal shrapnel and even bought new tires to ensure he wouldn't break down or be stopped with all of these explosives on him. Andrew Kehoe was bringing these explosives down to the school and hiding them all around the building, including inside some of the infrastructure. And I say almost undetected because neighbors who lived next to the school noticed late-night activity occurring in May of 1927, but they weren't sure exactly what they were seeing, so nothing was ever reported to the police. But in hindsight, we now know that it was Andrew Kehoe, pulling up to the school in his truck and hiding explosives, stuffing them in the eaves troughs, the ceilings, and other areas in and around the school and he also did the same thing with his own farmstead. Andrew's wife, Nellie, as I discussed, was struggling with tuberculosis and was in the hospital for a while in May, but was discharged on May 16th of 1927. Between then and the 18th, at some point, Nellie was murdered by her husband, Andrew Kehoe, although exactly when this happened is unclear. What is clear is that this was the first act of Andrew Kehoe's reign of terror. 
Nellie's body was found charred in a wheelbarrow near the farm's chicken coop, and she was surrounded by metal silverware, a cash box, and remnant ashes of banknotes. She was charred, and the banknotes were essentially ashes, because on May 18th, approximately at 8.45 a.m., Andrew Kehoe detonated firebombs in his house and around his property. The entire farmstead was quickly engulfed with flames and shattered pieces of the buildings and their contents flying into neighboring properties. It's unclear if Nellie died before or was killed in the explosions. When Andrew's neighbors first noticed the fire and flying debris after the explosion, First responders were notified that something was seriously wrong at the Kehoe farm. Several people rushed to the property and crawled through broken windows in the house and the farm in search of survivors, assuming that what was happening was just a seriously unlucky accident, having no idea that this entire thing was totally planned. But instead of finding survivors, what the volunteer rescuers found instead was dynamite that was unexploded and they also spotted Andrew Kehoe himself getting into his truck, warning first responders who had arrived that they should get themselves to the nearby Bath Consolidated School before driving off in a hurry. While the other first responders from further away from Kehoe's farmstead were heading to the scene of the explosions, they heard other ones in the direction of the Bath Consolidated School, where Andrew Kehoe himself was headed. What he had done was also set an alarm clock in the basement of the school's north wing, which would detonate the dynamite and pyrotol that he had been accumulating and hiding in the walls of the school. The explosions were set to go off around 8.45am, around the same time that the ones at his home had exploded too. When the explosives were detonated, 38 people were instantly killed in the north wing explosion at the school, most of them being children. In an old article by the Associated Press, one quote from a first grade teacher at the school says, The air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air, some were catapulted out of the building. Within minutes of the North Wing explosion at the school, parents began rushing to the scene, screaming and demanding information about their children to any staff members that survived the initial explosion. Before first responders even arrived, people began looking through the debris of the North Wing themselves, lifting blocks of concrete and bricks, looking for traces of their children. One mother was reportedly seen holding the hand of her little boy outside the school with two deceased children on either side of them, sobbing and watching the chaos in awe. Unfortunately, these two were standing a little too close to a truck in the lot that had appeared about a half hour after the North Wing explosion. This truck belonged to Andrew Kehoe and was full of shrapnel, additional explosives, and Kehoe himself. Andrew detonated the truck, killing himself, fatally wounding that little boy, and critically injuring his mother. The explosion also killed several other men and children who had survived the initial blast. The scene is described as extremely horrific, graphic, and scattered with carnage. It was stunning to see how one man could cause so much hurt. And yet for the people of Bath Township, there it was right in front of their eyes. 
A local drugstore was quickly turned into a triage center for the injured, and the local town hall was turned into a makeshift emergency morgue, where the deceased were brought in to be identified. Survivors with critical injuries were transported both to the Sparrow Hospital and the St. Lawrence Hospital in Lansing, and hundreds of rescue workers began sifting through the debris trying to find additional survivors, including people from the local Lansing Fire Department and the Michigan State Police. After a little while, former Governor Fred W. Green assisted in the rescue work himself, coming in and picking up debris, also trying to find survivors. During the rescue operations, first responders found about 500 pounds of dynamite that had failed to detonate in the south wing of the school on the opposite side. Upon this discovery, rescue efforts had to stop the search for survivors so that these explosives could be disarmed and the rest of the building could be searched for more. Anyone who was trapped under the debris just simply had to wait. Other rescue workers were at the Keyhoe Farm, trying to do a cleanup there as well, which is where they found Nellie in the wheelbarrow, alongside several animals who had died in the explosion. They also found a sign that was wired to one of the fences on the Keyhoe Farmstead that said, Criminals are made, not born. The aftermath of the disaster was a large gathering of public support for the Bath Township community, including contributions from the American Red Cross, who set up operation centers at the local drugstore for several tasks, including opening a landline for all inquiries, keeping a list of the dead and injured, and organizing public services for relief. The Red Cross would eventually manage to raise about $5,200 after a few weeks, which in today's money accounts for over $80,000, and all of it was spent to cover the costs of medical expenses for survivors and burial costs for the dead. The disaster quickly made national headlines, with people intrigued about Kehoe and his motive for committing such a crime. When the news made international headlines, people were less interested in Kehoe and why he did what he did, but more so, people across the world felt compelled to express their sympathy for those affected with letters, donations, and any gestures that they could come up with to bring relief to this deeply affected community. But with international attention also came morbid tourism. People were driving in from all over to drive through the local cemeteries, expressing their grief and sympathy with the community along the way, but mostly to gawk at the town and the destruction and the remnants of the Kehoe farmstead. One report I read said that there were over 100,000 cars that arrived in the area in the coming weeks after the disaster. In total, 45 people died as a result of Andrew Kehoe's actions, the last death occurring on August 22nd of 1927, months after the massacre, and that was a fourth grader, a 10-year-old named Beatrice Gibbs, who died after surgery to fix her broken hip. The community did what they could to rebuild, and school for the kids resumed the following September, but it was mostly held in community centers, places like the town hall and some other buildings that were quickly retrofitted to be suitable for students, at least in some capacity. I can only assume at this point that normalcy was not something anyone thought they would achieve in the near future. 
but people who were eager to see the community recover were certainly trying. And that included Michigan Senator at the time James Cousins, who on September 15th, just at the beginning of that new school year, presented a check for $75,000. And that's not even in today's money. That's in 1927 money, which today is equivalent to over a million dollars. And he did this to help build a new school. This large donation was able to jumpstart the reconstruction process of the Bath Consolidated School. But when the damaged parts of the school, such as the North Wing, were being deconstructed so that they could be rebuilt upon, more stashes of dynamite were found on three separate occasions. If all of Kehoe's explosives had been successful, it's hard to even imagine the magnitude of the loss and grief and tragedy that would have been experienced on that day because what happened was already insane. According to Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, who's the head of forensic science at Carnegie Mellon University, she believes that Andrew Kehoe might be an injustice collector. According to her definition of what this even means, it's someone who obsessively collects perceived slights along with personal misfortunes, latching onto these feelings and twisting them into a narrative of persecution. These incidences amalgamate until the person feels forced to seek revenge and lash out. Given what happened to Andrew, his very public defeat in the election for town clerk, the high taxes he ended up paying despite rigorous arguments against it, and the foreclosure of his farmstead, plus his wife Nellie dying of tuberculosis and those hospital bills piling up, This kind of checks out, at least in my opinion. It seemed like this series of unfortunate events were things that Andrew was taking deeply personally. Instead of understanding that the people might have thought that his opponent in the township clerk election might be just more qualified, he took that personally. When the school board voted to spend money and allow for landowners to pay higher taxes for the school, he took that personally. He blamed others for things that, frankly, seemed out of his control and out of everybody else's control. They were things that others were trying to do for the betterment of their community, but little did they know, it was at the expense of Andrew Kehoe, who would eventually take it all out on them in a very, very big way. Other people speculate that Andrew Kehoe was suffering with antisocial personality disorder or some other personality disorder. They believe that that, combined with his personal misfortunes, contributed to a psychotic break. People justify this theory by discussing Andrew's tendency to anger, his abuse to animals, and his quote-unquote not being friendly with many. At the end of the day, it's hard to understand why anybody would do something this violent. One can put a label or a name to a killer like this, an injustice collector, but it's still, in my opinion, doesn't seem to rationalize or justify why someone would lash out in such a big way and plan it for over a year. Andrew Kehoe was buried in an unmarked grave in St. John's, Michigan, while his wife, Nellie, who was murdered by him, was buried in a Lansing cemetery under her maiden name. 
There's a book about this case that's very interesting. I listened to it on Audible. No, this is not sponsored, but I have to recommend it to you if you're interested in learning more about the intricate details of Andrew Kehoe and what he did to kill 45 people at the Bath Consolidated School and his home. It's by Harold Schechter, and it's called Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. I'll link it with the rest of the sources I used for this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca. On my website, you can also find a case suggestion form where if you want to hear about a story, then you can let me know and I will absolutely talk about it here on the show. If you want to reach me directly, you can follow me on Instagram at crimopediapod and we can chat in my DMs. I'd love to know what you think about this case and any of the other ones I've discussed. As always, I hope you're all doing well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you, and with that, I thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast, and I will see you back here for the next one soon. But until then, take care and stay safe. Mm